Welcome back to CoreM, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Brian Gilberti. And I'm Braid C. Now, Bree, I bet you didn't know this about me, but I harbor a deep-seated resentment for mosquitoes. We have an unsettled score, and I wish the world were just rid of these pests. I'm sure they serve some purpose in this world. Okay, that may or may not be true, but I take great pleasure in swatting these guys, and with each splat, I feel like the world is a better place. And I want to spend the episode talking about why, in part, these insects are the cause of so much suffering in the world. Well, their bites are the least of our concerns. It's their role as vectors for deadly pathogens that makes mosquitoes easily, pound for pound, the deadliest creature on the planet. Malaria is just one of the scourges they spread throughout the tropics and subtropics. Yes, and it's a big one. The CDC reports in 2017, there were 219 million cases and 435,000 people died from this. Most of these deaths are from falciparum species, and what's worse, pregnant women and children are disproportionately represented among the dead. You mentioned falciparum, and we should focus on that species since it is, clinically, the most important one. But there are others that we should cover briefly before dissecting falciparum. Four other species in total, P. vivax, P. ovale, P. malaria, and P. nolesi. Besides falciparum, vivax and nolesi can also be fatal. Yeah, these are found throughout the tropics with different species predominating in certain areas. But as New Yorkers, what should we be worried about and what should we expect to see come into our emergency departments? Well, in New York, we see cases from sub-Saharan Africa and Asia mostly. But the CDC also reports cases in travelers from the Caribbean, Central America, and South America. We should stress that a history of recent travel to Africa, particularly West Africa, should raise suspicion for malaria because a large majority of cases diagnosed in the U.S. are from these areas, and so too are the majority of the fatal cases. Certainly, gathering a good history and picking up on recent travel is going to play a large role in diagnosing malaria. It is also important to know the incubation period. For falciparum, there's a delay of on average 12 days while these parasites replicate in hepatocytes until they rupture and release into the bloodstream and infect other erythrocytes. This can be a very broad range, extending weeks, though 95% of patients with falciparum will become symptomatic within one month of their return. Now, Brie, what are the other features of this illness that we should be looking out for? Okay, there are two main categories here, uncomplicated and severe malaria. So let's start off with uncomplicated garden variety malaria. Clinical findings with high likelihood ratios include periodic fevers, jaundice, splenomegaly, and pallor. And beyond those, you can get vomiting, headache, chills, abdominal pain, cough, and diarrhea. Okay, so a lot of nonspecific signs and symptoms here, but a few should give us some pause. Periodic fevers and jaundice. What about severe malaria? These patients are going to be sick, and they have a mortality of 5-30% to even with therapy. There are a lot of distinguishing features here, so check out the show notes for a complete table. The most common manifestations of severe malaria affect the brain, lungs, and kidneys. More specifically, patients with cerebral malaria can present encephalopathic or comatose, some severe enough to exhibit extensor posturing or seizures. They can have acute lung injury with a quarter of these patients progressing to ARDS. And finally, they can have AKI from ATN and result in acidosis. Yes, it is impressive how broad of a spectrum of disease can be caused by falciparum. Labs may be unremarkable in patients, though keep an eye out for severe anemia and thrombocytopenia as these have prognostic value. So hemoglobin less than 5 has an odds ratio of 4.9 for death. And if you have anemia and thrombocytopenia, that has an odds ratio of 13.8. 
And as expected, there may be a transaminitis and hyperbilirubinemia noted. However, what is particularly interesting is that some of these patients may be hypoglycemic, thought to be due to liver involvement leading to impaired gluconeogenesis and stripping of glycogen stores. This can be aggravated by quinine therapy as well, which is an inducer of endogenous insulin release. So don't forget that finger stick. Finally, malaria may not be the only infection we're dealing with in these patients. There's a high co-infection rate with salmonella, and that is believed to be due to the increased iron availability, which enhances salmonella growth. So get blood cultures, cover with ceftriaxone, and if the patient consents, test for HIV. Ooh, all right, a lot of ground covered, but let's get on to the meat of the talk, diagnosis and treatment. Okay, nothing real fancy with diagnosis, just looking at the blood smear under a microscope. There are going to be two preparations here. There's going to be a thick film, which is used to increase the sensitivity of detecting these parasites, and then there's going to be a thin film, one that helps us quantify the parasite load and identify the species. Our shop has a rapid antigen test that can give you the result in 15 to 20 minutes, but it won't give you that quantitative parasite load that is so important to us. Yeah, it's really important to know that there can be false negatives here, in part because the parasite may not be visualized due to sequestration. The first smear is positive in over 90% of cases, but if suspicion is high, it has to be repeated BID for two to three days for proper exclusion of malaria. Abri, now do you see why I hate mosquitoes? Yeah, those winged nuisances. Parasites within parasites. I hope Bill Gates gets rid of them. Yeah, Bree, I'm with Bill. I'm in his corner. Now let's switch gears and talk about what we are doing for these patients. You want to get ID on board because there are a lot of nuances to the care for these patients in multiple factors, including resistance patterns in the area in which the patient was infected. For uncomplicated, non-severe cases, most patients with falciparum should be admitted, especially those with no prior exposure to malaria parasites. Malrinone is one of the first-line options here, and check out the show notes for other suggested regimens from the CDC. It's important to note that when they take these medications, ensure that they take it with milk or food-containing fat to enhance the absorption. Okay, so those are patients without severe malaria. Seems pretty straightforward. How about patients with severe malaria? How are we treating them? For these guys, time is of the essence, and care beyond universal resuscitation efforts should be directed by the end organ that is affected. These patients can deteriorate rapidly, and empiric treatment should be initiated if there is a high level of suspicion that the patient is infected with malaria. Don't wait for the smear to come back. They should receive IV artisunate, which will require a call to the CDC because it's only distributed through them. That escalated quickly. (laughs) Yeah, and since malaria can affect many organs, let's talk about some other important points regarding management. Okay, hit me. What are you using for seizures? Yeah, benzos are fine. Also, keep in mind that a significant number of patients will have subclinical seizures. Is a regular transfusion okay for anemia? Yeah, most likely, though there isn't robust data here. And exchange transfusions are not recommended for severe malaria. Should they get fluids? Okay, now this is an interesting question because we see somebody come into the emergency department who's tachycardic and who's febrile, and we want to slam them with IV fluids. But in these patients, we have to take more care to evaluate their fluid status. This is important because evidence suggests that fluid boluses increase mortality at 48 hours in children and has been associated with pulmonary edema in adults. And know that if you're chasing a lactate here, lactic acidosis in malaria is more due to sequestration of infected erythrocytes and not hypovolemia. Nice. A lot of pro tips. Let's bring it together with some take-home points. Sure, let's do it. First, This is going to be a diagnosis that is mainly made through a thorough history and pay particular attention to those with recent travel to West Africa. The incubation period for falciparum is about 12 days, 
but this can range weeks, so we should consider malaria when consistent symptoms develop within one month of travel to an endemic area. Typical signs and symptoms for uncomplicated malaria are periodic fevers, jaundice, and pallor, and be mindful of end-organ involvement such as cerebral edema, ATN, and pulmonary edema. These cases are considered to be severe and treated differently than uncomplicated malaria. Check out the links in our show notes for CDC guidelines, but uncomplicated cases should get malarnone or coartem. Our severe cases are going to require IV or testinate, which means you have to get on the phone with the CDC to have it delivered. Finally, be judicious with your fluid resuscitation, as this can harm patients. Okay, a whole lot of stuff in this episode, a lot of nerding out. A special thanks to Dr. Kotkamp, our ID wizard, for her help in preparing this podcast. Well, that's all for this episode. Continue to follow us on Twitter at core underscore EM and visit us on our website, coreem.net. Until the next one, this is Brian and Bree signing off.